Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Last week, we began a study of Habakkuk, a very potent uh, but short three-chapter book. And it's especially powerful because Habakkuk really only interacts with God. He has uh, no message to the people in this book. So it's a time of utter chaos and darkness, and he's trying to reconcile devastating world problems with a holy and sovereign God. It's tough stuff, but he has moved somehow out of this world to something beyond. And we saw it last week in chapter 3 and verse 19 where we read, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. That's the very last verse of the book and it's the highest place of the book. So we started there so that we could get a glimpse of hope and, and, and work our way toward a vision of finding our security in God, being sort of above and beyond the chaos. And Habakkuk's a, a musician, so chapter three is a song. And you can see he sings a much different tune than the one we're gonna look at here in chapter one when he began, because he goes from confusion uh, to an, an anxiety to simplicity and security. Yeah. Uh, that's the high place. Now, I just want to throw in something here that I think is interesting. Um, and the role of music here and the sense it gives of transcendence. Music hits us all in a, at a deeper place. And so I'm, I'm reading a book, uh, savoring a book called uh, How Not to Be Secular uh, by James Smith. And then he says, the existential world is flat. It means... Uh, because there, there's, there's nothing beyond, there's nothing above. So there's no heights to, I mean, if you only have this world, there are no heights. There's nothing beyond. Uh, no, no one above to look to. Everything's just flat without God. In times like these, especially Americans, we're forced to look up from the lowlands uh, from the material world, science has its nose buried in the flat lands, you would say. It doesn't address, not in a meaningful way anyway, the deeper questions of life uh, that we ask in our souls. Is there a God? Is uh, what happens after you die? Is there meaning? Uh, and Francis Collins, probably the most widely respected geneticist in the world who was an atheist and became a Christian the world is looking to him for answers right now had an interview in the Atlantic uh, last week and this is what he said about science because science tends to lock you here music's one of those things that takes you beyond he says science it constricts the universe of important questions to assume they are all questions that science can address And he makes the observation that Freud both hated and feared music because it affected him so powerfully and deeply. It made him think of things past this world. 
and anyone who knows Francis Collins knows that he is, has a real gift of music. And he says this about it. It does something to my soul to be part of a musical experience. In fact, we have right now a really interesting moment to try to understand that connection because neuroscience is progressing rapidly in terms of how music has the ability to so powerfully affect us. And he adds this, I do think that music provides glimpses of what C.S. Lewis called joy. Those moments where you have a sense of something profoundly desirable, but as soon as you've started to realize it, it slips through your fingers. And so he says, music carries me there, probably more than in almost any other experience. And here's what I would say to you. If those questions are being stirred in your mind, in other words, you hear that music being played, don't drown it out. It's a sound that there's something more beautiful. There's a more beautiful piece of music to be sung and to be heard. Just fantastic. Now, with that said, how does Habakkuk get here? How does he get to hearing this new tune, this high place? Well, in chapter one, we're gonna see He's, he's going to wrestle with God, and in chapter 2, you'll see uh, next week, he's going to wait for God. Um, so let's look at chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read them to you. This is, this is how they sound. Listen to this. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted or crooked. I want you to notice in that passage the terms look and see. Because he's challenging God and he's questioning him. And he's saying to God, are you seeing this? Are you looking at this? There's complete chaos. Social, legal, moral, economic collapse. Evil seems to be winning. And he's asking God the same questions we ask during difficult times. Why and how long? So from his vantage point, what he's looking at, which he wants God to look at. God, see it the way I'm seeing it. Uh, evil's winning. You seem to be absent and inactive. Now, when I read that to you, you wouldn't know, didn't know we were reading Habakkuk. You would have thought he was reading from the Psalms. It's more than, more than a third of them sound just like this, crying out to God. So it's not the first time people have cried out to God in difficulty. When we think of Job, um, there are other sort of parts of the prophets that do it. And they're all included. They're all recorded for us. And I think that's important because this is a real part of relating to God. It's an essential part of the spiritual life, grappling with, wrestling, at times, very often, with a God who's so much bigger than we are. You know, in verse 1, he's, he calls this an oracle. And um, that means burden. Uh, and he's basically saying, relating to God and interacting with God on sort of these, in these tough times is, is a burden. It's a weight to bear. 
We have, as humans, we have hard questions. We ask them. Uh, And we relate to an infinite God. There's going to be wrestling. Wrestling is a part of it. And in fact, it's a gift. It's a gift to be able to wrestle with these things. Now, think about this. You could just believe that suffering is meaningless. If you live in a secular world, that's what you, that's, you know, a world without God. That's what I mean by secular. It means all flat. There's no high places. Uh, then, then it's all meaningless anyway. There's no need to whine, no need to think that hard about it. Uh, Or you could have, you know, just think about other religions. Um, There must be suffering. If you've got sort of the karmic religions, you, you, you know that you're dealing with, we're just recycling history all the time. It's just a process, it's a never ending cycle. Or perhaps detachment. Suffering is an illusion, it isn't real to begin with. Or you could approach it sort of stoically, you know, with a stiff upper lip. Christianity doesn't do any of those. It says no to all of that because it does matter. And God is bigger than we are. He's personal, he cares, and he's relational. So wrestling is just part of relating to him. It's real and it's intimate and it's honest. And here's the other beautiful thing. God's fine with it. That's what the record of all of these cries out to God tell us. You know, even Jesus from the cross cried out, quoting a psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God says to us, bring it on. You can break down in front of God. That's where you should break down. So we do have a place to go to voice those deep inner cries when we see things aren't the way they ought to be. That's a wonderful gift. I was watching a comedian here not long ago uh, who was talking about being a, a, a husband and, and, and father of two girls. And he's just overwhelmed sometimes by the responsibility and, and how much it costs to, to have a family and all these things. And he says sometimes he'll wake up really early in the morning and walk down the hall. And he'll be half-dressed, and he's just standing there, and he says, I don't even know how I got here, but it dawns on me. Everyone in this house is uh, dependent on me. I'm responsible for all of them. And he said it overwhelms him. He says, he goes, I think to myself, where am I going to take this angst that I have? He goes, I guess I could go in and wake up one of my girls, you know, and say to her, hey, hey, I know it's early, but do you ever feel like just not going to make it. That you just can't go on anymore. And then say, ah, it's okay. You go back to sleep. I'll see you at breakfast. (laughs) Where do you take it? Where do you take your cries and your angst? The scriptures say, God invites you to come to him with it. Now, I've got to tell you that I've never been especially good at it. I can't think of a time in my life where I could have written my own psalm. Uh, I tend to hold my angst in. It makes me, tends to make me a little bitter. Uh, I withdraw sort of from the personal dynamic with God. So I sort of operate, but the personal dynamic is gone. 
And it's not hard for me to just shut down at a personal level spiritually. But I want you to know I'm not doing that right now. I am not doing that right now. Um, God's hearing it from me. Um, don't, don't hold it in. Because I'm very capable of withdrawing from him. Right as I was writing that this week, this is really interesting. Somebody sent me a, a uh, I guess it was a tweet or something like that that Tim Keller sent out. It was a prayer that he's praying right now. And this is what he wrote. Lord, even when I don't know what to say to you, I need to tell you that. In dark times, prevent me from withdrawing and just talking and thinking to myself. I pray for prayer. Such a great line. Give me a desire to pray and then show me your face. That's how I'm praying. I'm not withdrawing from God. Um, So the advice here is pray. Don't hold in what you're feeling and thinking. Take it to God. That's what you do with him right now. He should be hearing it from you right now. If you go to verse 12 of chapter 1, you see Habakkuk say this, and you've probably said it. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And then he says, we shall not die. So you sort of ask this question. It's kind of rhetorical. It's a little stinging to God. It's like, aren't you supposed to be eternal and holy and personal? It's it's. It's Habakkuk wrestling with the fact that there is an incredibly almighty, sovereign, eternal God out there. Uh, He doesn't hold it in. Um, On the other hand, he doesn't take off running. He's confident we we shall not die. So he has utter hope. In fact, in chapter 2, he's just going to pull up a chair and sit right in front of God and not go anywhere until God answers. So on the one hand... What it means to wrestle with God. You don't hold in what you're feeling with him. But on the other hand, you don't take off running. And what that verse is saying is, (laughs) I cannot figure out life with you. But I definitely can't figure out life without you. That's even more insane. So I'm going to find a spot and sit here and wait. I don't understand but I'm not going anywhere. This is how you wrestle with God. You're honest with him, but you don't go anywhere. We've always had, I don't know, maybe since the Enlightenment, we've had this idea that our rational minds, uh, if we don't get it, it can't be right. If we don't understand it, something's wrong. I can't explain it. It looks stupid to me, so uh, I'm done. I'm going to take off. But the truth is there's nowhere to go. And Habakkuk knows that. So he stays put. (laughs) This is wrestling with God. You be who he asks you to be. In other words, God is saying, yeah, right now we're in a crisis and you have to be socially distant. But don't be spiritually distant from me. Don't fail to connect with me. That's deadly. Ultimately, you will be fine. He writes, right? We're not going to die. There's an ultimate hope and plan and end, and Habakkuk knows it. So make good decisions. Be loving. Be patient. 
Make the hard choices. Be bold right now. Honor him daily and take from him daily what he provides. One day at a time. And reach out to others. Uh, Another thing I found online, and you probably have seen it too, it was from C.S. Lewis. Screw tape letters. Just so profound, still relevant. This is what he writes. He says, plagues are a most effective weapon given to us by our Father below. Normally, Christians are quite comfortable in receiving the dreaded sacraments and gathering in their prayers and other heinous arts. Remember, these are two demons talking to each other about how to ruin people's spiritual lives. And he goes, we love plagues because they throw Christians off. If you can get them hysterical a little bit, then we have an in. Get them to forget about their usual practices of prayer and fasting and giving. Encourage them to become gluttons and slanderers and lose all regard for their neighbors and only thinking about themselves and their immediate needs. Storing up treasures which can send moth and rust to destroy. We can send moth and rust to destroy, further sweetening their torment. C.S. Lewis is pointing out here that whenever we're hurting like this, our first instinct is to self-preservation. But self-preservation is a killer. The mind set on the flesh is death. Don't abandon your values. He wants you right now to think twice about the, the very foundation of your life and abandon it. Don't abandon your values, your priorities, and your beliefs. They still matter. He ends this little uh, conversation A plague is a tried and true method of taking their eyes off of our enemy, who is God, and getting them to worship their own bodies. Habakkuk is saying, you can complain to God, but there's nowhere else to go. You stay put. Don't hold it in and don't take off. That's what it means to wrestle with God. That's our duty. Now you say, how is God going to answer him? Because it's still a good question. And God has a great response and he's still there. God hasn't wandered off, turned his back and said, I don't want to listen to that. So this is great news. And now you're going to see what it's like for God to hear us say those things. Because verse 5, if you look at verse 5, God is speaking. And he says this. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. This is such a profound statement, because here's God saying, okay, Habakkuk, you wanted me to look and see what you wanted me to see. Now I'm going to ask you to look and see what I see. Uh, this is fantastic. He says, look at the nations. Remember, Israel was a nation. Judah was a nation. And so he's worried about his nation. He's not thinking about the other nations. And so God is about to broaden his horizon. Because this is one of the things, when you get to a high place, your perspective is bigger. It's not just on you. It goes past you. 
And God says, I'm dealing with everything. You're just looking at horizontally at the flatlands. I'm about to offer you a mountain, a high place. Uh, and this is, this is what it means to be at a high place, to have this. <laughs> God says it's bigger than you. Uh, your vision is myopic. And then he says this, and what I'm, about to show, what I'm about to tell you is wonderful and astounding. This is a great word because it means to be bewildered and dumbfounded. You will not be able to comprehend it. And this is what God is saying here. And this is what we learn when we interact with an infinite God. It's just possible that you can't see everything, Habakkuk, and that you don't know everything. And for your information, I am working. And even if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't believe it. And God's about to say in verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, the evil nation, that bitter, hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God's about to say, I'm going to use evil. I'm using it. I hate evil. That's what he says later in the chapter. I don't cause evil, but I do rule over it. And I will eventually, when I'm done with it, punish it. This is very difficult for Habakkuk to grasp. It's difficult for us to grasp. But God says, believe it. Believe it even though it sounds unbelievable. Even though I'm telling you it's unbelievable, I'm also asking you to believe it. So he's basically saying to Habakkuk, don't judge me by your limited vision. Your, your plans, your desires, or your timetable. Now I want you to think about something because it'll, it'll relate to here and then sort of uh, we'll be able to see it too. Think about how Israel failed so miserably. I mean, God's always dealing with failure. That's part of what's behind this story. They were never a light to the nations. And so God sends them into captivity, sends them right into the evil, violent, immoral nation of Babylon. And now all of a sudden, God is there. And you remember when they return after 70 years, some of them stay. And so the gospel continues to grow there. Then you get to Acts and the gospel continues to go out there. But how? How does the church finally get to doing what God wanted it to do? Persecution. God had to scatter them. It's the way God works. Uses evil things to accomplish good things. And how about today? We constantly look at the world and go, how is God going to reach people today? I mean, we're, we're stuck in a kind of unbelief, a defiant unbelief globally. But you're like, how's the message going to get through? Well, I'll tell you what God does. And this hit me home in a way so humbling. Just a few years back when I went to northern Iraq, I talked about it not long ago. Because I just got off the phone with Matt Nowry, sort of heads up, Samaritan's Purse. Uh, there in northern Iraq serving all of the refugees, thousands and thousands and thousands of refugees who have spent, literally, listen to this, 11 winters in tents in northern Iraq. And you look at the world and you see the refugees that are coming 
from the north and, and all around that area. And the gospel is getting to these people. And they have nowhere else to go. They've got to listen. And many of them are listening. And Matt says, you can't believe what's happening here. You say, why would God do that to people? It's so horrific. It's very difficult. People won't hear unless they're in those difficult circumstances. I met a group of guys who were refugees. There was eight of them. And they sat in a room with me. And even now, they were excited, even though they've lost everything they had. They said, we're excited to be able to share the gospel. These are believers, refugees. Excited to share the gospel. And their lives are at risk in doing it. But they're excited about it. That's how God works. So I can't possibly grasp all that's going on. I can't fully see from God's perspective. But there's always more to see than what you and I see. Hey, I know it hurts. And the truth is I hate it. I don't always get it. I can't get it. I can't compute it. I remember years ago when I was with my son, uh, Eric. My son, Eric, was about 18 months old. He was really chunky, and he got really, really sick. Uh, So... uh, they couldn't get blood out of this little fatty of mine. And um, they couldn't find a vein. And I had to hold him down. I literally got on top of the table and held him down. 18 months old. This incredibly vulnerable face looking up at me. While they're poking him in both arms trying to find a vein. And I was bawling and he was bawling. And he's looking at me. Like, why in the world would you do this to me? But I knew it had to be done. I knew it was the best thing. And I knew he couldn't comprehend it all at the same time. And I didn't even try to explain it to him because he wouldn't have been able to understand it. It was one of the most powerful experiences of my life because I know God must feel the exact same way. Because I'll tell you this. When I was holding that boy down there, there was never one moment when I wasn't looking out for his best interest the entire time. Never one. So you say, what's, what's God saying? God says, I can bring purpose out of pain. I can bring salvation from judgment. I can bring justice from injustice. Because that's Habakkuk's concern. And you know, we know something Habakkuk didn't know and couldn't know. This is a fascinating thing. In the book of Acts, uh, when the church is uh, sort of going through persecution and the the gospel's spreading and Christians are just spreading out all all over the empire, uh, you have Paul is giving a sermon. He's talking about what Jesus Christ has done for the people that he's speaking to, even though the times are difficult. And he quotes Habakkuk 1.5, quotes the very verse, and he says this, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and everyone who, is, who believes is free. And then he says this, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. Here's where he quotes the verse. Be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if 
One tells it to you. He quotes the very verse. And what he's doing is recounting all of Israel's history right up to the person of Christ. As if Christ is the supreme fulfillment of this message in Habakkuk. God preserved Israel, even in the time of Habakkuk, all the way so that Christ could come from Israel. Habakkuk could have never seen what God was up to, orchestrating history so that his son could come into the world and redeem it. He could have never seen that. And you know, he says twice, he says, I'm at work, for I am doing a work, a work that you will not believe. What's the work? It's the death and resurrection of Christ. If you read Acts 13, you see it. And what he's saying is, I can be sure that God cares. I can be sure that he's just. I know that he will punish evil at the same time he's using it. And he will actually overcome it as well. I will save evil ones. I will judge evil, even if I have to pay the price myself. The cross is the proof. Look here, God says. Paul says to us, you want God's answer to Habakkuk? Look at the cross. Look and see. Jesus is the ultimate answer to Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. The cross is the proof. Remember when Habakkuk said, we will not die? That's because, ultimately, of what Christ has done. Do you have that hope? God has made a way. Look at the cross. See judgment and mercy at the same time. See evil being done, violence being done, betrayal being done. It it was immoral. And at the same time that that is happening, God is accomplishing redemption for the world. So look, look at the cross. It will dumbfound you what God is capable of and how much God loves you. You know what he's saying? He's telling you. Because he says, you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. He quotes that in Acts as if to say, I'm telling you something unbelievable that you better believe. I'm telling you something unbelievable that you better believe. Uh, Last week, I ended with a poem from William Cowper. And I want to do it again this week. Um, Probably my favorite poem from him. Uh, It's very possible you've come across it, but it seems to fit with this theme today. Uh, He says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And then I love this last last part. Blind unbelief is sure to err. 
and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Hillside, there's a strong message in here for us right now. If we want to be on that high place, wrestle with God through this. There's a place to go, and there's a God who oversees everything. And he can do the unbelievable if it sounds unbelievable to you right now. And for those of you who don't know Christ, all I can say is look to the cross. It is the answer. It is God's answer to those of us who are struggling to see what we need to see. Father, thank you for your word. Let it penetrate our hearts and move us to that high place. In Jesus' name.